0: Father, grant that in every fall, we may go lower on our knees. And when we rise, it may be to loftier heights of devotion. We have opened your holy, inspired, and inerrant word. This is your word. It dropped from your lips. It is your breath. We know this isn't a waste of time for us. You mean this word for our edification. You mean this word for our instruction in righteousness. You mean this word for us to see Jesus. Father, we've all been in services where we felt the word grip us, and we've all been in services where we left untouched. We left untouched because we didn't want to be touched, either consciously or unconsciously. We were not ready to encounter you in the text. When we leave today, grant that we may be able to say, he touched me. We need to leave this meeting knowing that your word has had an unmistakable impact on our souls Do this, Lord. We beg you. Do this for your own glory. This is not just my plea. This is our corporate plea. Amen. We have, friends, quite a text before us. A pregnant woman, a red dragon, two beasts. The revelation of God is given to us here in apocalyptic literature. This literature sometimes communicates God's message through the use of wild, scary, imaginative, bizarre, and head-scratching imagery. It's the sovereignty of God taught via (laughs) sci-fi. We've got quite a text before us. And we've got quite a God before us. Both chapters are battle scenes. Chapter 12, there is a cosmic battle. Chapter 13, there is an earthly battle. It's the same battle viewed from two different fronts. It's the battle for the souls of men and women, boys and girls. I intend to walk you through the cosmic battle and pull out theological truths then I intend to walk through the earthly battle and pull more theological truths. Let's begin the walk. Verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant And was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. (laughs) What an appropriate Mother's Day text. (laughs) Don't tell me I'm not sensitive. Look at the glorious text I chose for Mother's Day. You may have noticed we don't change our preaching schedule because of American holidays. What's going on in verse 1? There's a woman giving birth, screaming, Obviously, she didn't take the epidural. (laughs) This leads us to our first theological truth. When a man passes a kidney stone, it's just as painful as a woman giving birth. I'm I'm just kidding. Stop. Stop. Stop throwing things. Hopefully, my theological truths, unlike that one, will be rooted in the Scriptures. We do have in our text a beautiful woman. She's clothed in the sun... Vibrant, glowing. She is on the moon, exalted, honored. On her head, 12 stars. Striking, brilliant. What is happening in chapter 12? It's the apocalyptic Christmas story. But this is not the nativity scene we are familiar with. No baby in a manger. No shepherds rejoicing. No wise men bringing gifts. Instead, we have a woman giving birth while on the moon, a ten-horned red dragon waiting to eat the baby as it's pushed out of the womb, and a teleported male child, (laughs) a woman giving birth while on the moon. Top that, Neil Armstrong. (laughs) (laughs) What we have here is an apocalyptic way of showing you what was going on behind the scenes when Jesus was born. It seems natural to think this woman is Mary and Jesus is the baby. I think that's half right. I think the baby is Jesus, but I don't think the woman is Mary. Here's why. In verse 17, it says that the dragon, when he couldn't kill the baby, went to make war on the rest of her offspring, the baby's older brothers and sisters. Mary didn't have any other children before Jesus was born. There were no other, no older brothers or sisters to go after. Mary had more children after Jesus was born, but not before she was a virgin. I think this woman is symbolic. It would not be the first symbolic woman we've ran across in the book. In fact, there are four symbolic women in Revelation. We've already dealt with one in the church at Thyatira, Jezebel. The Roman Catholic Church, some of you have a background there, The Roman Catholic Church believes this is the Virgin Mary and it's showing you her elevated status. But Mary didn't give birth on the moon, nor did she flee to the wilderness, nor did she have two wings. I will not deny that Mother Mary is a type of this woman, but not exactly this woman. I'm inclined to believe, along with a host of other scholars, that this is not Mother Mary, but Mother Israel. I see this as a symbolic woman, as a representation of Israel. Jesus is the seed of Israel. She had 12 stars on her head. Think of the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel is often represented as a travailing pregnant woman in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 26 verse 17 says, Like a pregnant woman who rides and cries out in her pains when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O oh Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed. Same story in Isaiah 54. Same story in Isaiah 66. Hosea 13:13. Jeremiah 4, 31. Which says, For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, anguish as of one giving birth to her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion, gasping for breath. Micah 4.10 and Micah 5.3 pick up the same imagery. What I am attempting to point out to you is that in the Old Testament, Israel is frequently pictured as a pregnant woman giving birth. God promised that the nation of Israel would give birth to the Messiah. And they did. Verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold a great red dragon. With seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads, seven diadems. Look at verse 4b. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. <laughs> this freak has seven heads and ten horns. Now, three of the heads must have more than one horn. Seven heads, ten horns. He also has crowns, seven of them. You can't draw this and make it look right. The crowns don't fit comfortably. The dragon appears as ugly as the woman is lovely. The author does not leave us in doubt about the identity of this monster. Thirteen times in Revelation, Satan is called a dragon. This red dragon is none other than Satan himself. He's a monster, an ugly one, a mean one, a murderous one. Are you shocked that the monster is trying to kill a baby? Satan hates babies. Abortion is his work. This imagery is meant to be grotesque. Will the swaddled infant survive the machines of terror? We have a mother and a monster. This is a symbolic scene that represents an invisible drama. Let me say that again. This is a symbolic scene that represents an invisible drama. The mother is Israel, the people of God. The monster is Satan, the enemy of God. Which leads us to our first theological truth Satan's main target was to eliminate the Messiah. The entire Bible is one unfolding history of Satan attempting to eliminate the seed of the woman, the Messiah. He did it by attempting to eliminate the Israelites, kill that people group, and there will be no Messiah. So we find in the Old Testament, nation after nation after nation attempting to destroy God's people. So God's Messiah would not be born. Satan tried. Satan failed. The nation of Israel marched on, beaten, bloodied, bruised, but marching on. Satan again tried to eliminate the seed of the woman when Jesus was an infant. Herod was a mere pawn in the talons of the dragon to order the slaughter of all infants in Bethlehem. Satan tried. Satan failed. Baby Jesus escaped. Satan continued his rage against the Messiah just before Jesus launched his public ministry. Jesus went into a desert, and there Satan tempted him for 40 days. Jesus sins once. It's over. The baby is eaten. Satan tried. Satan failed. Jesus proves to be the sinless one. Where Israel failed in the desert, Jesus didn't. He's the true and better Israel. All of Satan's wicked efforts culminated at the cross. The dragon turned a disciple, Judas. He turned a people, ethnic Israel. He turned a criminal loose, Barabbas. And he chained and crucified Jesus. Jesus hangs on a cross. The dragon rages against him. This is it. He's finally going to consume the male child. He's finally going to thwart the plan of the father. Jesus faced violent antagonism his entire life. The pinnacle was here on the cross. The dragon is poised to eat him. What happens? Verse 5. She gave birth to a male child. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was called up to God and to his throne. See, Satan launched an all-out attack because the birth of the lamb inaugurated the death of the dragon. A full cradle and an empty tomb spelled his doom. Satan's attempt to kill God's child to eliminate Israel's chosen seed is thwarted because the child is snatched up to God. We have in this text a mention of the birth and ascension of Jesus Christ. It moves from the birth to the ascension in one fell swoop. It, however, skips the death and resurrection. Why? Well, the seven churches have the gospel records. This is meant to be a short, graphic, grotesque, apocalyptic truth that the Messiah escaped the dragon's attempts. A baby who can't change his own diaper against the machinery of Satan. How is that possible? That's the point. This text is speaking about supernatural protection. If the dragon eats that baby, you're in hell forever. If the dragon destroys Israel before the Messiah comes from Israel, you have no hope of salvation. Verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. Now, after reading verse 6, we're left wondering, why is the woman fleeing? Now, I want you to jump to verse 13. I'm going to read these verses out of order because what we have in this chapter is the same story told two different ways. Verses 1 through 6 is the short version of the story. Verses 7 through 17 is the long version of the story. Instead of of telling the story two times, I will tell it once and pull from both both the long and short version. Verse 13b, the dragon pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Church, who now becomes the primary target of the dragon's attack? (laughs) The baby is snatched up to heaven. Now the dragon turns his face to the mother. The dragon is chasing the woman who just gave birth. Now, we know this is symbolic. Ain't no woman giving birth and going, oh, baby's out. Let me take a run. (laughs) This is speaking of Israel. Israel is running. Or more pointed, the messianic community is running. I think this is ideal Israel meaning the people of God are one throughout the redemptive history. The early church did not view itself as discontinuous with faithful Israel. The first readers are hearing this read to them in the seven local churches, and they are knowing that this is pointing to them. The dragon is now after them. Historically, Israel spent a lot of time in the wilderness, and so will God's ideal Israel, the church. The hostility that was geared toward the child, she will now share in. Which leads us to our second theological truth. The dragon is now hell bent on destroying the church. The existence of this enraged red dragon, it's no sci-fi thriller. It's called Monday for the local church. It's not a movie. It's reality. The great red dragon stands behind all the persecution that these seven local churches were facing. Since he couldn't destroy Jesus Christ, the dragon will destroy his church. He attempted to kill Jesus. It didn't work. So now he'll go after his followers. D.A. Carson, speaking 17 years ago, said 160,000 Christians have been martyred each year over the last 10 years. The dragon is still persecuting the church. A woman in India watches her Christian sister dragged off by Hindu nationalists. A Christian man awakens in a North Korean prison camp. He awakens just to be beaten unconsciously once again. A group of children laugh and play as they enter the building where their church meets in Sri Lanka. Moments later, a blast. They're all killed by a bomb. Verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. The dragon wasn't able to eat the sun, so now he's trying to drown the woman. Make her riverborn. The dragon vomits a river out of his mouth. This is an attempt of the dragon to exterminate the church. This would have been familiar language to these original readers. They read their Old Testaments. They knew that persecution was likened to menacing waters. Isaiah 28, Psalm 18. Look at verse 16 of our text. But the earth came to the help of the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. God swallowed the river that was going to swallow the woman. This wouldn't be the only time that God's opened the earth to swallow evil. He did it with Korah. At the Red Sea, water swallowed up the persecutors of the people of God. I love the promise found in Isaiah 43 verse 2. That says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. God promises to be with his children when they face persecution. This scene alludes to God's care of the persecuted church. You find it again in verse 14. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. God said in the Old Testament, I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Exodus 19. Look at verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Now, church, I contest that the woman and her offspring are both God's people multiple symbols pointing to the same source that's common in apocalyptic literature. Satan is at war with all Christians. How long will the dragon chase the woman? Persecute the church? Well, that's our third theological truth. And it's this. The length of this conflict has been predetermined. Predetermined. You find a, a hint of that in verse 6 and 14. Verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Verse 14. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Now, one thousand. 260 days, 42 months, a time, and times, and half a time. Last week, you saw the numbers 1,260 and the 42 months. Already in our text, you've seen the 1,260 days. Later, you will see 42 months. And here for the first time, you see a time and times and half a time. This is three different ways of describing three and a half years. 1,260 days is three and a half years. 42 months is three and a half years. A time and times and half a time is three and a half years. So, the persecution of the church will only last for three and a half years. Right, Kyle? I say no. I contest that when the original readers heard these numbers, they thought not of a length of time, but a kind of time, a time of persecution. I take this as the standard symbol for a limited period of time. Now, just like in math class, let me show my work. When Israel escaped Egyptian bondage and went into the wilderness, they set up 42 encampments. Elijah shut off the rain for 42 months, three and a half years. Antiochus Epiphanes, About 30 years before these churches received this letter, laid waste Jerusalem and sacrificed pigs on the altar. You want to know how long it lasted? It lasted for three and a half years. You tell me, church, what is the most common number in Revelation? I'm going to count to three and then let's all say it together. All right, you're going to need to know this. There's a test at the end of Revelation. I'm giving you pre-test here. All right, what is the number? One, two, three, Seven. seven. Three and a half is a broken seven. It's a time of brokenness and persecution. See if this rings a bell with you. Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Four score and seven years ago. You you know that, right? It's embedded in your mind. The first century version of that was three and a half years. They, They could have finished it for us. 1,260 days, 42 months, a time and times and half a time. Kevin DeYoung, Jim Hamilton, Tom Schreiner, Sam Storms all believes this refers to a period of time between Jesus' death and resurrection and his second coming. It's a time of tyranny, eschatological crisis, and we're in it. We're in the three and a half years, the 42 months, the time and times and half a time. Everyone since Jesus has been in it. It's a time when the people of God face intense persecution. It's a time when we're chased by the the great red dragon. Anyone after the resurrection of Jesus Christ is in the 42 months. That's including, hear me church, put it in context. That is including the seven churches to whom this letter is addressed. I don't know how long this period will last. We're going on 2,000 years. But I know the length of this conflict has been predetermined by God. He said a beginning and an end. God's not wearing your watch. So no need for you to continue to look at it and wonder when it's going to be over. Instead, look to him, the one who will sustain you in it. Which leads us to our fourth theological truth, and it's a spoiler alert. Satan is a formidable, but defeated foe. Satan is a formidable, but defeated foe. Verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Satan knows his time is limited. He thought Calvary spelled his victory, but it spelled his defeat. You suffer Church, you suffer not because Satan is stronger than God, but because he's already been beaten by God. The devil knows he's already lost. God kept the promise to Satan from Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, that's the Messiah, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Calvary and the resurrection proved Jesus Christ as the Messiah and the dragon slayer. As you go through life, you're not fighting for victory. Change your mentality. You're not fighting for victory. You're fighting from victory. Victory proclaimed from an empty tomb. Verse 4. The dragon's tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. What are the stars? Verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, so telling the same thing. Verse 4 and 7 are telling the same thing. But verse 4 is the short version, verse 7 is the long version. Verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. Let me stop here. Notice the piling up of names. These are oppositional restatements about who the dragon is. It's called an over-specification. The great dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, the deceiver. The verse continues. He was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. Verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth. See church what happened is war broke out in heaven. John neglects the details of the battle. But we know it was between Michael. This archangel. Michael and his angels. And Satan and his angels. We are told the result of the battle. Satan was bounced from heaven. I don't think this is a future battle but a past battle. I think we have a future battle later in Revelation, but not here. Now, let me me ask you. Two angels fight. How do angels fight? They can't be harmed by earthly weapons. Let me give you two conservative views on these verses, and you can decide which one sounds like the right option. I think both are possible. Option number one. Option number one says this is referring back to the original satanic and angelic fall. About 30% of scholars believe this refers to the original war in heaven where Satan and his angels were cast down. They say Satan seduced one-third of the angelic host, stars in the text, and they were kicked out of heaven with him. These former angelic beings are now demons. These angels were given a, a moment of free will and are now stuck in that decision. That's option one. Option two says that the stars that are being swept down by the tail of the dragon is not referring to angels. It's a quote from Daniel eight ten, referring to partial destruction, not three thirds but one third, partial. The throne down here is not. The thrown down here is not speaking of a spatial fall. It's not speaking of a change of address. It's symbolically, generally speaking, of Satan's destruction. Satan's destruction and apocalyptic vocab. In other words, all this talk about falling down from heaven is not a theology of fallen angels. It's a theology of Satan's ultimate defeat. Now, those are the two options. I don't think either one does harm to the text. I lean toward option two. Verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying... Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for, you may want to note this, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. The title, accuser of the brothers, implies the rather chilling intention of our chief enemy. To bring a legal charge and accusation against us. Satan's role of accuser has a long history. But it appears that he can no longer accuse believers. It appears from this text that he's lost that place of accusation. We know that he had it at one time. We even know that he had it after the original fall from heaven. We know that he had it because he accused Job to God. Now I say this loosely, I say this loosely because there's mystery here, but there was a time when God permitted Satan to lodge complaints against the people of God. That's recorded for us in the book of Job. Satan was sleeplessly vigilant about this. It does not appear that Satan can any longer accuse believers to God. That time has ended. Well, what ended it? Maybe the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Believers are free from sins forever, free from guilt forever. Satan now accuses us to ourselves, but does not accuse us to God. Christ's work removed the basis of his accusations. Satan is disbarred disbarred from God's courtroom. He could enter it for a time, but no longer. He lost his place as the accuser of God's people. Christ's atonement for sin stripped Satan of his accusatory power. Jesus defamed the red dragon. That's chapter 12. It's a cosmic battle. More behind the scenes. And then we'll look at chapter 13 now and that's an earthly battle. That's out in the open. The previous chapter ended with the red dragon, you may remember from our reading at the beginning of the service, the previous chapter ended with the red dragon standing on the shore contemplating his failures. He's taking a little walk on the beach. Yeah, well, what's his purpose? He stands on the shore to call up his hellish workers from the same abyss he came from. He calls the the first beast from the sea. The sea was always a, a place of chaos in the Bible. Two beasts. There is a beast described in verses 1 through 10. He's most often referred to as the Antichrist. There is a beast described in verses 11 through 18. He's most often referred to as the false prophet. Now, I want you to notice I have question marks by the term antichrist and by the term false prophet. I'm going to explain that later. But before we run down that path of attempting to identify these beasts, I want you to see the big picture. Who do we have standing on the beach? (laughs) We have the red dragon, the antichrist, And the false prophet. It's the unholy trinity. You will discover as we walk through chapter 13. They parody the trinity. They are a mock trinity. The antichrist parodies Jesus Christ. He's a messianic pretender. A fake messiah. He's an imitation lamb. You will see that clearly in about three minutes. The false prophet parodies the Holy Spirit. He's a copycat spirit. A cheap imitation. He exalts the Antichrist like the Holy Spirit exalts the true Christ. The false prophet seals unbelievers and the Holy Spirit seals true believers. Now let's look at the first beast. Verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns. And seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. As this beast, church, as this beast ever so gradually arises from the dark, watery home, we see that he has ten horns, seven heads, and ten crowns. He bears a striking resemblance to the red dragon. He's the dragon's image bearer. He's Satan's knockoff. He has has seven heads. He's a complete monster. Perfectly hideous. He's the devil's son. The devil's incarnation. Verse 2 goes on to further describe his appearance. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Uh, Now we know what he looks like. Its feet were like a bear's. Wait a minute, what? And its mouth was like a lion's mouth. We're at three animals now? And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. It's part leopard, part bear, part lion, and part another animal that has ten horns. Is this ringing any bells? Daniel 7 would be flashing in the minds of the first readers. There in Daniel 7, it was four different beasts. But here we have a combination of all four beasts. This is a hybrid beast. Here John transcends Daniel. He goes beyond Daniel. It's his burden to say something more than Daniel said. Verse 3. And one of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound. But its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. This beast has seven heads. But one of the heads has a mortal wound. It's fatal. The beast should die. However, this beast survived the mortal wound. He came back to life, if you would. The masses marvel at this miracle. He, he wasn't just rumored to be alive like Elvis or Tupac. He really survived the mortal wound. This is a faux resurrection. The red dragon and this hybrid beast somehow fake the crucifixion and the resurrection. In, in the Greek, it is so clear that you are to compare this beast with the slain lamb. Uh, The text repeats the same language. The lamb standing as though it had been slain. Here the beast standing as though it had been slain. He's the great counterfeiter, the great imposter. Now, some scholars believe it's possible the audience of this letter thought of Nero while hearing this. Remember, this, this this was a book not written to us but written for us. It had an original audience. It had first readers. And the first readers were these seven local churches. The readers were familiar with the Nero legend that happened 25 years ago. After Nero's death, many thought he would return. Now, why did they think he would return? Was was he putting out albums like Tupac was or walking the streets of Memphis like Elvis? No. People were convinced his death was fate and that he merely went into hiding. I don't think that's what this is pointing to, but I thought that was interesting. Verse 4. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against him? When people saw what happened to the hideous beast, they worshiped the dragon. They thought the red dragon brought the beast back to life. People worshiped, believing he cannot be resisted or overcome. Verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Does that sound familiar? The beast will wreak havoc for 42 months. Seven heads, but a singular mouth. With it, the beast goes on to slander God's name and God's people. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 7. Also, The beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. This hybrid beast was permitted to make war on God's holy people and conquer them. This does not mean they will recant their faith, but he can take their lives. Verse 8, and all who dwell on earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So everyone's going to worship. He makes the non-elect worship him. The earth dwellers, remember that phrase used 12 times in the book, always referring to non-Christians? But he will not fool the true followers. Those in the Lamb's book of life, they will not worship him. Everyone else will pledge allegiance to their master, but not those in the book. I used to love this old song. Maybe you've heard it. There's a new name written down in heaven, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. I love that song. So I start reading the Bible. Friend, there are no new names. All the names have been written down from the foundation of the world. These names do not worship the beast. That's the first beast. Let's meet the second beast, verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. As opposed to coming up out of the sea, this one comes up out of the earth, verse 12. It exercises all authority for the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. The second beast is joined at the hip with the first beast. His puppet, if you like. The henchman of the first. But he's less fearsome than the first. He's not as in your face. Not as cruel. Not as ugly. He's a lamb. When I was a child, I wanted to become a a sheriff's deputy. And then from a sheriff's deputy, move into a a detective position. I grew up in in, in, in a sheriff's home. So I was able to see a a lot of that firsthand. I actually led a a county-wide program for teens that wanted to become officers when they grew up. Some of those teens, I think, are in prison now, so I didn't do a good job. (laughs) But here's one of the fun things. Playing good cop and bad cop in the interrogation room. The bad cop slams his hands on the table and yells the good cop calms him down and makes common ground with the criminal in order to get the criminal to confess to the crime. Here's the training point. Both cops had the same goal. They seemed like they were on opposite sides for a bit, but they were both after the same thing. Don't ever forget that these beasts are after the same thing. Your destruction. One may seem savage and the other pleasant, But both came from the abyss. The first beast literally kills Christians. And the second beast is more friendly. Simply tries to teach them doctrine which leads to their spiritual death. Verse 13. The second beast performs great signs even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. This beast has the ability to perform spectacular signs. Dazzling people with these seeming miracles. These signs make people open their mouths and open their ears. The second beast even made an image of the first beast and the statue came to life. Verses 14 15. Now some believe this is trickery. Others believe otherwise. The pervasive influence of this second beast is huge. He's not swaying certain pockets of society like just the gullible or just the poor now look at verse 16. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. He's convinced people from all walks of life to show public allegiance to the dragon. They do this by putting something on their right hand or on their forehead. We are told in the next verse, whoever does not have this mark on their right hand or the forehead will face economic discrimination. They will not be able to buy food or medicine or gasoline. They will not be able to rent apartments. No one will engage in in any trade without the mark. Leaves us with the question, what is the mark? Mounts says religious tattooing in this day was common. So maybe it's a tattoo. I was surprised (laughs) and a a bit disappointed to read John MacArthur say this could be a barcode implanted in your skin that someone can scan and it will go to a central computer system. But church, we all know what the mark is. It's the COVID vaccine. (laughs) I'm I'm just kidding. It's GMOs. Here's what it's talking about. Those who identify as Christians will not go along with this religious system of the beast. Therefore, they will face economic and social consequences. These seven churches, the recipients of this letter, were already facing that. Remember in Thyatira, the trade guilds? They would kick Christians out. Each guild, they had like a plumbing guild, a metal guild. Each guild was dedicated to a patron god. They held special banquets in honor of that God. They sacrificed meats to that God and then all ate it. If their business prospered, it was their God who was given the credit. If their trade took a hit, they wondered if someone in the guild stopped honoring the God. It became nearly impossible for Christians to work a job and be loyal to Christ at the same time. But it still leaves us with the same question. What is the mark? I think this is an ancient reference to the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4. The Shema is this, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, Now that was it. And then there's further instruction. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Notice this. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. The ancient Shema was written on the right hand or the forehead of people as a symbol of devoting all of your thoughts and your actions to the one true God. It was a symbol to devote all your thoughts and your actions to the one true God. It was an ancient prayer of allegiance. Here, instead of having the word of God on their right hand and their forehead, you have this mark. Symbolic to show these people's allegiance. Their thoughts and actions are devoted to the beast. That's what it's saying. Their thoughts and actions are devoted to the beast. You can't see the mark right now on people's forehead. It's invisible, if you like. It's it's symbolic language to identify the people that follow the dragon. Now, no verse in Revelation has received more attention than this next one. Verse 18. This calls for wisdom. Yeah, Yeah, every verse in Revelation does that. But especially this one. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So this is why some of you have have been taught that 666 will be tattooed on the forehead of people in the end times. Remember, it is is my belief, I think, we're already in the 42 months. We're already in the 1260 days. We're already in the time and times and half a time, the three and a half year symbolic period. I think the 666 is happening now. And I I want you to understand here because this is referring to the first beast, but it's in the the second beast section. The second beast is putting 666 on the forehead of of the people. But 666 is the number of the first beast, often called the the Antichrist. Now this has led to wild speculation about the identity of this Antichrist. People have used a process called gematria, Gematria assigns numbers to letters in the alphabet. Thus, every name yields a number. Let me take you back historically. There was a a graffiti from Pompeii that read, I love her whose number is 545. It's romantic, isn't it? I love her whose number is 545. So people read this and they think, oh, this is an invitation for us to work backwards find out who this antichrist is now if we did this in our alphabet it would be like this a equals one b equals two c equals three d equals four e equals five etc and then there's a way you would add up all the numbers of the first name to equal six and then add up all the numbers of the middle name to 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 equal six it gets really mathematical Uh, in our alphabet people have said that the antichrist was was ronald wilson reagan Using this has has led people to say that the 666 is the name of Nero. But that that really makes no sense. The the readers would have to know to transliterate from Greek to Hebrew in order to get the 666, which is really unrealistic for their education levels. Many modern commentators hold to this view. Interestingly, very few ancient ones do. In the second century... Uh, Arrhenius listed three possibilities of who the 666 was. He did that in the second century, meaning he didn't know who it was less than 100 years later. An additional 1,800 years of conjecture has helped us none. Views from Julius Caesar to Vespian, it's hermeneutical quicksand to attempt to identify this person Now, you're gonna feel like I misled you in just a moment, okay? Here's my view I don't think 666 is supposed to give us a name. I don't think it's a riddle hiding a person. You know why? Because Gematria 666 produces all sorts of names, all sorts of names. That's why there's all sorts of crazy conspiracies about who the Antichrist is. It does not tell us much if the key fits the lock if the lock accepts almost any key. (laughs) The man's name is 666. Now, here's my belief. The man's name is 666, not 777. Yes, you get a gold star right here on the front row. (laughs) I see this as a number of counterfeit perfection. It falls short of perfection. In other words, the beast is human, not divine. Now, G.K. Beale says the beast is good enough to deceive many, but not good enough to displace Jesus. He's trying to be 777, but he's only 666. The best the unholy trinity can do is mock, which leads us to our fifth theological truth. Does the first beast point to the Antichrist and does the second beast point to the false prophet? I don't think it's harmful to refer to this beast as the Antichrist. There are definite Antichrist things going on with him. But I hesitate to give this title Antichrist to the first beast for two reasons. Reason number one, the word Antichrist does not appear one time in the book of Revelation that surprise you? Antichrist, the word, is used five times in the Bible, none in Revelation, all mentions in 1 and 2 John. Reason two. I, and this is where you're going to feel like I misled you earlier. Reason two. I'm not convinced this is one particular person. I think this is pointing to a political empire. In Daniel 7, the beast... Each represented an empire, a, a kingdom. Uh, you remember the, the four beasts the, 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 the leopard, the lion, the bear, and then this mystery beast with, with ten horns. The four beasts in Daniel 7 represented political empires, four to- totalitarian states. If this hybrid beast does not represent an empire or a kingdom, it would break that progression. The first readers knew Daniel 7. They knew each beast in that text represented an empire, and now they see one beast that combines all of those beasts. They probably think the beast is Rome. The current manifestation of the beast was Rome, but we must not limit it to Rome. There were many beasts before, and there will be many beasts after. There were many kingdoms before, and there will be many kingdoms after. Mounts, Balkum, Bill, Hamilton, Shriner, all believe it's not pointing to a person, but an empire. I see the first beast representing a political system of evil that will continue to manifest itself. This is speaking of a corrupt, oppressive state. And say, well, what about the first beast dying and coming back to life? There will be times when we think the evil, corrupt, oppressive states have ceased and and then they will reappear, resurrect. The, The dragon, the red dragon, has his pharaohs and then they pass off the scene. But he's ready with Caligula and Nero He's ready with Napoleon and Pol Pot. He's he's ready with Mao and Hitler and Stalin and Ivan the Terrible and Saddam Hussein. Totalitarianism or evil, corrupt, oppressive governments, defeated ones. Always come back around. This is a trans-historical beast. Now, I believe these two beasts are highly symbolized ways of referring to specific things. All right, now, I'm saying this three different ways. You don't have to get them all. Just, just get one of the three. That's my hope. One of the three. I think the first beast is broadly representative of political power. I think the second beast is broadly representative of religious power. So maybe that got you. If not, I'll say it another way. I think the first beast is a perversion of the government. And the second beast is a perversion of Christianity. Another way. The first beast is the devil institutionalized. The second beast is the devil spiritualized. Here's what I'm trying to say. The first beast is anti-Christian government. It's anti-Christian government. The second beast is anti-Christian religion. Both attack Christ and his church. Which leads us to our sixth theological truth. The temptation to compromise will be great while living under the reign of the first beast. The problem with human government is that it's governed by humans. Government is instituted by God. This is not an anti-government text. We are, we are not anarchist. Government is a gift. But we are not ignorant that it is often used as an instrument of evil when God intended it to be used as an instrument for good. When you, church, refuse to be poured into the jello mold of the world, you will receive pushback. Mark it down. There will always be a price to pay for those who do not worship the beast of this world. You will be pressured. Pressured. But do not be intimidated by brilliant people who are utterly in the dark about the central purpose of the universe. Do not long to be a part of this world with its alluring promises. Be willing to have your academic tenure denied. Be willing to be ostracized at work. Be willing to be laughed at because you're the only person not following the beast. I didn't read this in the exposition, but verse 10b says, Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. You could put that phrase over every chapter in Revelation. Especially these two. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. These chapters call for you to endure. The woman and her offspring will not be eradicated. Some may die. Some will suffer. Some will prove to be imitators but we will not be eradicated. When your faith begins to fail, remind yourself of this. Over and over, remind yourself of this. You never have to fear the beast if you belong to the Lamb. You never have to fear the beast if you belong to the Lamb. Which leads us to our seventh theological truth. Beware of superficial resemblance to true Christianity by the second beast. You remember that second beast, right? He he looked like a lamb. Church, we need to point out this beast as often as we see him. He's a minister of propaganda. Jesus foretold of false teachers who would, with displays of signs and wonders, deceive. Now this could be in the form of those so-called faith healers and miracle workers in our generation. Or it could be more subtle. Accept Jesus as Savior now. And later, if you choose, submit to him as Lord. What? Everywhere in the Bible, Jesus demands exclusive loyalty and worship. Are you worshiping a faux Jesus? I no longer ask the question, are you worshiping Jesus? Are you worshiping a faux Jesus, a cheap imitation? Just because someone claims to be a Christian doesn't mean they are. The tricky thing is they may even look like a lamb. Jesus commanded you to be aware, to beware of false teachers in sheep's clothing. Not everyone who preaches a false gospel will have a terrible personality or a terrible demeanor. Sometimes they will be extremely likable and you kind of just want to hang out with them. Now, the last theological truth is this it's the eighth. Everyone is sealed, but not everyone bears the same seal. Everyone is sealed. But not everyone bears the same seal. Or you can say it this way everyone has a mark, but not everyone has the same mark. God has sealed his, God put a mark on them. Satan has sealed his, Satan put a mark on them. Satan's mark is a clumsy counterfeit, but it is a mark. Everyone that doesn't have God's mark will face his wrath. And hear me, everyone who does not have Satan's mark will face Satan's wrath. The question is, whose wrath do you want to face? The beast is going to do what the beast does. And the sovereign is going to do what the sovereign does. To those of you who are not Christians, I want to be very frank with you. We Christians consider you deceived. It may be a shocker to you. We Christians consider you to be deceived. You say, Kyle, I'm, I'm neutral. I'm not following God or the dragon. I'm not following Jesus Christ or the Antichrist That statement alone proves you are deceived. You're not neutral. See, neutrality is a false gospel that the second beast preaches. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. You've toyed around with the copycats long enough. It's time to meet the real cat, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Let's stand together. Father, we leave this text thanking you that you did what we begged of you to do when we first entered the text. We begged of you to meet with us, and on the other end, you have met with us. So we want to give you glory for this. We want to give you glory for answered prayers. What a text. What a god. Church must sing.